Okay, we've got the charts four and five. In our last session, we made the case for the pre-tribulational rapture, why we believe it to be a part of the eschaton. As I said before, the word rapture is derived from the Latin rapio, meaning to sneeze, to, I was going to say sneeze, to seize, to snatch, to carry away. Now in this session and the next, we will detail the events of the rapture, their order and significance. Before we begin, however, an important reminder is in order. Turn please to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that great passage on the resurrection and last things. 1 Corinthians 15, let's read near the end, verses 51 to 53. This is the nursery verse, right? Right, Dave? We shall not all be changed, or we shall not all be... Yes, I remember. You've used that <laughs> joke before. <laughs> we shall all be I didn't get it then sleep, either. But we shall all be changed. Yeah, we shall, yeah, all, we shall be all be changed. 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Our important reminder is in verse 52, quote, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, end quote. As we proceed to detail the events of the rapture, remember that all... Every last part of it occurs in the blink of an eye. While it may take us an hour to discuss the rapture's individual events, in real time, all those events take place within the time it takes to blink your eye. Our principal text for the events of the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, which is included on your chart. Chart 4. Could we have that on screen, please? Ah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You should keep this chart handy during this session as well as the next. You want to bring this one back next week. I've also included chart 5, which places all the different resurrections described in God's Word. This will be used during our next session, so bring it back with you next week as well. Our passage begins, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. And I I cannot help, there's no way I can keep certain thoughts out of this. This you know this this session was sold this this class was sold as giving a chronological order to the end times. But you can't just do that. I mean I could have covered that in the first session. 
immediately I read this, for the Lord Himself. And I, I landed on the word Himself. What precious truth. What compassionate condescension is announced in that brief phrase. The Lord Himself. Heaven often employs its angels for getting things done on earth or delivering messages. That's what the word angel means. In Hebrew, it's malach. The book in the Old Testament is named after that. Messenger. Malachi. Malach. In Greek, it's angelos. It means messenger. This time, however, it's not a messenger. It's the second member of the Godhead Himself. No lieutenants, no underlings, no emissaries. Our Savior personally comes to collect His own. Although this is not Christ's official second coming, which occurs between the tribulation and the millennium, when He returns in breathtaking power, wrath, and judgment, even so, in the near touchdown of the rapture, He still comes in great authority. He comes as a commanding general. All the underlying Greek substantiates this. It begins with the Lord, ho kurios, the Master, the One supreme in authority, controller. He's in charge. And He comes with a shout, with a cry of command, en kalusmati. It's from kaluo, which means a command, a summons, an order. A commanding general issues his orders. No one takes issue with them. No one disobeys. They obey. It says, with the voice of the archangel, phone, a disclosure of some sort, a tone, a sound, a disclosure, disclosing something. This is about to happen. The trumpet of God. More on this in a moment. But it's salpingi, a quavering or reverberation. In the Pentateuch, we have a perfect illustration of what sort of effect the trumpet of God might have on mere mortals. Turn please to Exodus 19. Yahweh instructed Moses to consecrate the people and bring them to the foot of the mountain so they can hear Him speaking to Moses. Exodus 19. I love this passage. Beginning, let's read verses 16 to 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Don't mess around with him. Don't mess around with him. 
Now that may be, that may be a picture of what happens at the rapture. Later in that, later in Exodus chapter 20, it says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, I love this part. Then they said to Moses, uh, you speak to us yourself and we'll listen. We'll obey, but let not God speak to us or we will die. That's what happens to a human being standing in the presence of God. It's Exodus 20, verses 18-19. In the very first split second of Christ's return, He announces that He is no longer showing Himself as the gentle, humble servant of before. He is Lord. And now with the same voice He used to bring into existence creation itself, He issues commands that must and will be obeyed. And His first command is that the graves of the redeemed be emptied. Now, let us not force this supernatural event into the earthly rules of physics. He's God. He can do whatever He wants. God plays by His own rules and is under no obligation to fit His ways into our understanding. Some have used this verse to be critical of the position that the rapture will be something that is critical. Okay, let me start that sentence again. Some have used this verse to be critical, emphasis on critical, of the position that the rapture will be something that is relatively secret, that is in contrast to when Christ comes back to earth itself for the millennium and the whole world will witness him. Every eye will see that coming. During the rapture, Christ remains at some lofty place between heaven and earth. Somewhere. We don't know for sure. And deals only with the redeemed. The critics posit that with these three audible signals, the Lord's shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call, the entire world will know what is going on. But who among us can say what it will sound like? Will these sounds be in sequence, one after the other, or all at once? Do you know what the voice of an archangel sounds like? I don't. We have a pretty good idea what it sounded like in Exodus at Mount Sinai. They couldn't bear it. Maybe it will be that way, maybe not. Do you know what the trumpet of God sounds like? How will three heavenly sounds, whether distinct from one another or in unison, sound to earthly human ears? The sound of a lightning strike ten miles distant can be an extended rolling rumble, often pleasant to the ears on a hot August night. I like that sound, that deep rumble off in the distance, a long ways away. That same lightning strike outside one's window is a sharp crack of doom. 
I don't like that sound. Decidedly unpleasant. Perhaps the cry of command from the Lord will be a warm, inviting melody with harmony contributed by the head angel, the duet accompanied by God's trumpet. Or it may be the jolting crack of a lightning strike outside one's bedroom. David Guzik points out another possible aspect of this. He writes this, It may be that all three descriptions, shout, voice, and trumpet, refer to the same sound, or there may be three distinct sounds. The rapture will not be silent or secret, though the vast majority of people may not understand the sound or its meaning. That's another angle on it. That's something we see in God's Word, isn't it? With that possibility, the unregenerate may hear something, but will probably not know what it is. Paul on the road to Damascus saw and heard something very different from what his companions heard. Acts 9, 3-7. God the Father and Jesus had a conversation in, in John 12, 28-29. The bystanders had different opinions about what they heard. Here's what it says. Jesus said, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. <laughs> He's God. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, ah. An angel had spoken to him. We know what's going on. Both of which were wrong. It's from the ESV, by the way. It's quite possible the people will indeed hear a sound. They just won't know what it is. Finally, even if these three sounds, either individually or collectively, are so thunderous that those being raised either from the grave or from the earth, surface of the earth, even if they must cover their ears, it hurts so much. Do we imagine that the one who created all things cannot tune the frequency to just a subset of the population? I think that's my favorite idea for this. God can be as loud and thunderous as He wants, but He knows how to tune the dial. I want only my people to hear this. Do they not each have the Holy Spirit in residence who might act as a receiver tuned to the frequency of Christ's voice? A frequency inaudible or at least incomprehensible to the unregenerate? A dog hears a dog whistle. A human being doesn't. Does not the one with the Spirit comprehend God's written Word where others do not? Today we're here to this right now as an example of this. There are people... I have history books on this shelf. They're written by a good historian... Will Durant, good historian, 
But when you read his, his volume about the time of Christ and Rome, you say, okay, but he doesn't have the Spirit. He doesn't understand what's being written. He's just looking at it from a historical perspective. What we're studying in this class, those without the Spirit look at it and say, well, this is nonsense. This is just myth. This, why waste your time with this? Whereas those with the Spirit say, this is God talking to us. So I think that's a very real possibility. Maybe the world will hear it. Maybe some might be snapped into back snapped into the reality of God because of it. But they won't know what it is. They won't be on the right frequency. The verse continues, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Whether the summoning sounds are in unison or a sequence, their immediate purpose is to call the dead up from out of the ground or from wherever they are, be it coffin, urn, sea bottom, or nothingness. God will find them. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. He will find them. He knows where all the pieces are. If there are no pieces, doesn't matter. He's God. God is not stymied by the nature of our remains. Whether, whatever or wherever we are, we will be raised to new life in Him. Some in the church in Thessalonica were afraid that if they died before Christ's return, they would have, as it were, missed the train. Oops, we blew it. We missed. It's going to leave without us. If the Thessalonians had been familiar with Jewish Scripture, they would have been encouraged by something Job said a very, very long time before the first century. Turn, please, to Job chapter 19. Blow the dust off Job chapter 19. Familiar passage, especially when we sing the hymns that are from this. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We we who have grown up in the church get so calloused about Scripture. We don't mean to, but we've lived with it our whole lives. We've read these so many times. Just imagine that. This is Job. When I read the Bible in chronological order, we, it stops in Genesis midway in the early, after a few chapters of Genesis and it skips to Job. That's how old Job is. That's how old this story is. It's ancient, ancient, ancient. He didn't even know Yahweh, really, 
long before the law, long before any of that, and certainly long before Christ. Yet he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He'll take his stand on the earth. (laughs) That's exactly right. Even after I'm dead and gone, after my skin is destroyed, notice what he says, from my flesh I shall see God. I'll stand before Him. I'll look Him in the face. He says, my heart faints within me. From the New King James, my heart yearns within me. It's two different ideas that I think say the, pretty much the same, but a little different color. We yearn for that moment. We yearn for that for everyone in our family. But thinking about it takes our breath away. Imagine. Mine too, Job. My heart faints within me too. It's usually profitable to look around the corner of what we read in God's Word. To come in by the side door, as it were. I like to do that. In speaking of the resurrection of believers, I've made the point that there's little value in being saved by Christ if one is not raised from the grave. What's the point of that? So I'm not going to hell. I'm stuck in a grave. Big deal. What good would that be? But because He was raised as the first fruits, because Christ was raised from the dead, those who are in Christ. Notice that it never says, I, this is something I learned in this study. In this, in, in this study of the last things, we, we hear it saying, those who are asleep. And we, we get it. It, those are church words. Uh, asleep means dead. We know it doesn't mean taking a nap. Notice that it never says Jesus was asleep. He died. We are asleep because we're waiting. We're in the waiting room for Him. He isn't waiting for someone. He's the Lord. We're the ones who are asleep because we're waiting. Paul goes, because he was raised from the dead, those who are in Christ will be as well. If he had not been raised from the dead, we could not be raised from the dead. Paul goes out of his way to lift the Thessalonians out of their ignorance about this. Turn please to 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four. Come on, where is it? Verses thirteen to sixteen. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Read that, but trumpet call God? Is that what you said? The trumpet call of God. Call of God, okay. Close one. Okay, great. Paul makes it clear, those who have died prior to Christ's return will not just be raised from the grave. Their situation will be addressed first. They will be the priority. Now, still looking around the corner, we should wonder, what good would it be to just be raised from the dead? Knowing what will be occurring after the rapture, who would want to go from the grave to that? I mean, if the tribulation includes people crying out for the mountains to fall on them, to put them out of their misery, well, a grave is better than that. You're already buried. You're safe from all that that's going on in the tribulation. No. We will be raised to be with Him. Verse 14 in the passage just read says, Even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know, nowhere, in, nowhere in God's Word does it say, Jesus is your personal Savior, personal Savior. That's, a, that's our phrase. Accurate. But it's our phrase. This is an example of it. Very personal, our God. He comes down and takes us by the hand and lifts us out of the grave. And he doesn't just say, okay, now, you're back back on earth, you're breathing, fine. Have a good day. And then he splits. No, he takes us with him. The promise from God is that if we are in His Son, if our body enters the grave belonging to Christ, it will one day be raised from the grave to live with Him and the Father for all eternity. That is our hope. That is real salvation. As Jesus put it so eloquently in John 14, 6. We can read this familiar passage now in a new light because of the Thessalonian passage. This is coming in the side door. We, we're, we Probably everyone in here could recite this verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see the new color to that? 
Doesn't that last clause take on extra meaning in light of the passage in Thessalonians? We typically think of John 14.6 to mean that the only way to God the Father, that is, the only way to obtain eternal life with God rather than the alternative, is through faith in Christ. Perfectly true, of course. Perfectly true. But as is usual in God's Word, there's a lot more there than just that that we skim off the surface. It also means that in the day of resurrection, when Christ returns, the way upward to the Father for saints, both living and asleep, all around the world, will be through and with Christ. The only way we get to the Father at the resurrection is with Christ. He will come to personally conduct us into the presence of our Heavenly Father. For this reason, one of the most comforting and encouraging words in the Bible are the ones at the end of verse 17. And so we shall always be with the Lord. In our next session, we will continue with the events of the rapture. Be sure to bring both of these charts with you. Now, questions, thoughts, disputes? Yes, Greg. Hang on. It's coming. I guess I'm getting a little fuzzy-headed in my old age. Um, Welcome to the club. The question that comes to my mind immediately upon seeing this is, I mean, I know everything that you've told us. I know that's all true. So, if I die tonight, uh, there has been part of me that's been thinking, well, I'll, I'll be with Jesus tonight. Mm-hmm then the question is, what does it mean that those who are asleep will rise at the rapture? Is that just the Old Testament saints? Is it just our physical bodies? Or is it us? Because if it's us, then that negates what I was thinking, that I was already there in heaven. We, there's a, we have a weakness. It's called the human language, the English language. We very, I deal with this in a future, not necessarily your question, but I, this specific point I discuss in a, somewhere down the line. I, I forget where I'm at. But we have a habit. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the only one. Of mixing up spirit and soul. We kind of make them synonymous. They aren't. Not at all. And in response to your question, I always like it. Even when Dennis isn't here, I always have a Dennis who brings us forward into the next class. Uh, the 
when we die, the soul leaves the body, the flesh. The body is buried. The soul goes up. The soul is not associated with the spirit. The soul is associated with the body. It, it's, it's a body thing. Spirit is a God thing. Soul is a body thing. And at our death, those two are separated. The body stays, the soul goes up. Now, what that soul looks like, I have no idea. What it means for that soul to be with Christ, is it given something temporary to live in? I have no idea. I don't believe God's Word even speaks to that. It just says we're with Him. Jesus said to the guy on the cross, he says, tonight you'll be with me in paradise. His soul would be with Him in paradise. At the resurrection... Yes, the Old Testament saints are included in the rapture. Anyone who believes in Christ through faith is taken up. That would include Abraham. How was he saved? By faith, not by works. And others. But at the resurrection, it's not just a lifting up out of the ground, it's putting the pieces back together again. That's what happens. That soul comes back to be in the glorified body. And I've made the point before and probably will again that we, are, we must have that glorified body. This is one of the reasons why you know, some may take, may take issue with the fact that Jesus is called the first fruits. Well, wait a minute. What about Lazarus? He was raised from the dead. Different. He was not raised to a glorified body. He was just raised from the dead. Can I have a mic next time that doesn't want to fall off my ear? <laughs> um, he was raised to just keep on living. And then he died a natural death subsequently. Christ Jesus was raised to a glorified body. The only way we know what a glorified body looks like for us is what Jesus gives us as an example in those last 40 days. So it's putting the pieces back together again so that when we are, go up to be with Christ, we're put back together again. A new, brand new glorified body. Thank you, God. And the soul back with the body. And we have to have that glorified body because without it, in the presence of Father God, we would be vaporized. You can't live with God in flesh because it's fallen. It's fleshly. It's sinful. You have to have a brand new body. Those who are resurrected who are not in Christ have to have a new body. They get a new body. One that will survive for eternity in fire and not be consumed. Does that answer your question? No, not hasn't quite. <laughs> it raises some more. But okay. <laughs> okay, good. Can't win for losing. So where are the 
in the ground. Well, this is this this is an area. She asked, "Where are the dead in Christ now? They're somewhere." They're probably in hell. Mm-hmm. Because hell is not the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. So they've experienced the first death. You guys are jumping ahead. You always do this. You're jumping ahead. And I don't think you said that right. The dead in Christ is my mother. My mother is not in hell. No, no, no. She asked, not in Christ. Something about those gray cells, don't you think, Greg? You know, it just, they just kind of vaporize, don't they? they? Okay, say it again. Where are the dead in Christ now? Their bodies are in, if there is a body, they're in the ground, they're in their grave. Their soul is in heaven with the Lord. Did I get it right? Okay. Somehow I thought you meant the dead not in Christ. kind of just said what I wanted to say but um, you know it's just some of it is a mystery but the scriptures do say does say that um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's right. So that's what I lean on and how he does it I don't really care (laughs) but um, (laughs) I know that the dead in I mean that um, to be absent from this body I'll be present with the Lord. So the one that's absent from the body is the soul. Not the spirit, the soul. Anything else? Yeah, Greg. Oh boy, here we go. Right at the last moment, he's going to ask me a question that takes a half an hour to answer. Get ready. Here we go. Where was Jesus, or at least his soul, the three days he was in the grave? Oh boy. Why is there air? (laughs) There are those who say he was in hell. I don't buy that. To be honest, I haven't quite sorted all that out for myself. I, I don't feel confident to answer your question but I don't, there are, just as there are multiple heavens, there are multiple, multiple hells. It's, they're called different things in God's Word. Sheol, uh, uh, Hades, hell. Sometimes they're synonymous. Sometimes they refer to a different place. We know there is not purgatory. That's a Catholic thing. You don't have to be prayed out of purgatory to go to heaven. But there are different places. There's the abyss. Satan, during the millennium, God's plan's incredible. What we'll see coming down the line here is what happens during, when you chart it out, what's going on in heaven during the, the tribulation. And and the, the millennium is very much like that. 
what's going on on earth during the millennium, the thousand-year millennium, redundant, is uh, Christ on earth ruling. Where's Satan? In the abyss. Locked in chains in the abyss. So that's another kind of hell. But it's not the second death. The, last, the second death, which we will not experience. We've, when we die, we experience the first death. The second death, fire. The lake of fire. There's no coming back from that. But it's also not nothingness. You are alive. That's why you have to have a new body for that. Father God, we have small minds compared to yours. We are small. You are great. You have worked all this out. You know exactly what you're doing. We don't. We strive to learn. We try to understand. But even after working through all this, there are still great mysteries. We ask for your illumination. We ask for your spirit to quicken in us, all of us, not just the teacher, all of us, to illumine your word, to get it right. Where we do not get it right, stop us. Correct it. I pray, Father, that any time I say something incorrect, you have someone here to correct me. Because we must leave this room getting it right. By your grace and your kindness and generosity that we will do that. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dave, I was just going to say, I was trying to get you to 1 Corinthians 15, where Adam was a man of dust, Jesus is a man of heaven, and thus the first Adam gave us a perishable body, but the second Adam gives us an imperishable one, what is sown in... Well, if you wanted me to go there, then say it. <laughs>